I had so many dark days for years and years. My story that my classmates created about me and who I was and what I was worth followed me from the time I was like eight years old until I graduated high school. And that was terrible. That helped me to understand compassion. And of course that built my character and created, you know, who I am today, someone who cares deeply and stands her ground because I couldn't then because we're somewhat powerless as children. I probably overcompensate now and it's probably very woven into my activism for animals and for other marginalized communities, but what a terrible way to get to that place. Hi plant friends and welcome to another episode of the PBN podcast. I'm your host Robbie Lockie. On this week's episode we meet the bubbly and colorful vegan Jasmine Singer. At the age of just 24, Jasmine Singer turned to veganism after watching a film about factory farming. Learning about the horrors of dairy and egg production led her to incorporate animal rights into her LGBTQ and feminist activism. Jasmine then began volunteering at Peter's headquarters in New York, Virginia and began steering her career towards animal rights activism. As well as being a leading expert, Jasmine Singer is now a huge visible presence within the vegan community. She is a coveted speaker on topics including radical body positivity, personal narrative as a means of social justice, and how to change the world for animals. She is also the author of The Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan and Always Too Much and Never Enough, a memoir. Along with her co-host Marion Sullivan, Jasmine and her team continue to change the world for animals on the long-running award-winning podcast Our Hen House. I was fortunate to feature on one of those episodes and I'll link it in the show notes below. Jasmine's incredible contribution to animal rights does not stop there. She is the former senior editor of Veg News magazine and the longtime love columnist and celebrity interviewer. In 2020, Jasmine had the enviable job of interviewing actor Joaquin Phoenix, who had used his prominence to not only effectively veganize the menu of the Academy Awards, but also treat his acceptance speech as a way of sharing his concerns for animal rights issues. You may well have seen Jasmine appearing in various documentaries such as The Ghost in Our Machine and Veducated. She has also contributed to many anthologies such as Running, Eating, Thinking, Defiant Daughters, Voices of Animal Liberation, Queer and Straight Voices and Circles of Compassion. As an actor, Jasmine starred in the film The Bra Mitzvah and has appeared in television commercials too. She holds a BFA in acting from Pace University and is a certified health counsellor as well. Jasmine is a longtime activist across many realms, including animal rights activism, LGBTQ activism, and of course, anti-racism. As always, if you love this episode, please don't forget to comment, like, and share. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It really helps get the message out there. Let's get to the episode. Thanks so much for joining us on the PBN Podcast, Jasmine. It's a real pleasure to have you here. I'm so excited to talk to you, Robbie. Thanks for having me. Until and unless we shift our focus and we change our filters of ourselves, we will not be able to show up authentically. We will live in a whirlwind of assumptions about others and we will never grow. It's really this simple. The way we view ourselves is born from a conscious choice to accept and even love what is. And then, then to relentlessly challenge ourselves to reset that judgment as compassion. So before we get started and hear everything about what you've been doing in recent years, let's go back in time and tell us your vegan story, because that's the thing that brought us together. Let's hear how it all started for you. Sure. Well, I was a vegetarian first, like a lot of people were, and I went vegetarian in college, which was over 20 years ago, about 20 
two years ago. I was 19 and I thought that meat was icky and I thought it kind of suited my theatrical self to call myself a vegetarian as well. So I would wear all black and smoke clove cigarettes, but never inhale them and call myself a vegetarian, but not the mean (laughs) kind, I would say, not the mean kind. Little did I know I would have a whole lifetime ahead of me of being (laughs) the mean kind. (laughs) Uh, So anyway... I was a I was a feminist, I was an activist, and then after college I was working in AIDS awareness theater. And I would be advocating for uh, marginalized communities. And then during our breaks from rehearsal, I would run across the street. This was in New York City, and I would get probably the single most disgusting food, which is cottage cheese. And <laughs> I I don't even understand how it's a food. And I would eat it. And uh, then I met a vegan, you know, and the rest is is history once we meet that vegan. Well, I, I know that's not your story. Your story is like my favorite go vegan story. In It's in, pretty it's pretty dramatic. Yeah. Yeah. Mine is very like self-focused and yours is very like uh, altruistic. Like this. Well, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily say that. I mean, my story does involve me trying to find out a way to improve my health. And, you know, that is what set me on the path. That is what planted those seeds but when it came to the lifestyle I mean how much did you know you know in those years how much did you know about veganism and where you know what were your opinions of it back when I was a vegetarian I knew nothing about veganism I don't even think I knew what factory farming was I mean it was the late 90s and I was young and just kind of puttering around there was a vegetarian who went to my performing arts college that I went to and she was also a lesbian I wasn't yet out as a lesbian. And so here I knew this lesbian who was a vegetarian and I was like super like drawn to her, not exactly attracted, but like drawn to her. And I told her when I went vegetarian, hey, I joined your team. And she winked at me and said, I always knew you would. (laughs) But (laughs) it would be years before I actually came out as a lesbian. But uh, so she kind of represented to me what it meant to be living authentically. And that was it. I knew nothing about food beyond the fact that I thought that the I was living in Philadelphia and the Philly cheesesteaks were like utterly disgusting. I mean, th- like, think about it. What a cheesesteak is. It's it's just the, the look of it. It's gross. So, I don't even know what a cheese. What is a cheesesteak? It's like ground beef mixed with cheese. And it winds oh. up being this sort of gooey, concoction of like it looks almost like uh innards i mean it's 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 abysmal so i (laughs) that sounds horrendous it was bad but anyway so when i was 24 and i met the vegan and i was already working as an activist and and whatnot she she brought me to a screening that she was hosting of a documentary i just learned about factory farming and and about the exploitation of the reproductive systems of uh, female animals. It's funny because it was like many years later that I thought about the exploitation of the reproductive system of male animals and realized it's not just a feminist issue that like the eggs and dairy are fundamental to the motherhood of animals. And we're just, you know, just completely destroying that process for these animals. We're destroying it for the boys too, whose semen is forcibly extracted. I hadn't thought of that until many years of being vegan. As for tips that I would give, I would say that you should find and foster transition foods. 
And by transition foods, I mean the plant-based versions of foods you might be used to. There is an ethically sourced, delicious, cruelty-free, healthful, health-promoting food to every single animal product you're used to. From mac and cheese, to cheeseburgers, to foie gras, you name it. There is a vegan version. Go out there and find it. Start making it. Start buying it and you would like it too. I also recommend finding and fostering community. There's some great online resources for vegans and for budding vegans that are out there. So just tap into that a little bit. There might be a meetup group in your area for vegan food, for restaurants, things like that. And lastly, don't be afraid of vegetables. Vegetables are delicious. Mom was right. We should eat them and there are creative ways of making them. So don't buy those popular misconceptions that vegans don't get enough protein. I'm completely, completely, like 100% healthy and you get lots of protein from plant-based sources like beans and tofu and, and tempeh and seitan as well as vegetables themselves. And so the vegan culture or the lifestyle, the philosophy, like how did you take that banner on and, and what and, and what and in what ways did your life did you did you kind of advocate in your life were you mm -hmm. doing die-ins or were you were you one of those sort of angry vegans who went screaming at people in the streets demanding yeah. they quit meat tomorrow you know meat is murder hashtag meat is murder or were you a more moderate approach I think I was everything I was all of the above at the beginning I didn't just go vegan when I went vegan but I it was New York City in like the early aughts I immediately got swept up into this group of animal activists who really took me under their wing. And it was a very grassroots scene then. So there was a lot of leafleting. There was a lot of uh, protesting. But within like a month, I was working in the movement. Uh, someone, the late Mary Max, sent me down to PETA to volunteer for a week. So that kind of indoctrinated me in. And then I, I got back to New York and realized I needed to work in the animal protection movement. So I immediately got a job for said Viva, which I know you work, you work closely with. Viva USA briefly existed. And then at Farm Sanctuary as the campaigns manager, which I did for a while. And I started giving workshops on veganism. So there was a lot of like performance element, you know, education, things like that. And how have you seen things evolve since since you first started the movement? Because a lot has changed. And what what are some of the biggest things for you that, that you've seen have shift? The biggest shift I've seen has been that even though grassroots certainly still exists in terms of a strategy, and I celebrate that, I, I, I mostly celebrate it when it's paired with a media component. I think grassroots by itself can only go so far. I think media is the single most important thing we've got when it comes to changing the world for animals. But the way that I've seen things shift is that it's business ventures that are, are sort of leading the charge when it comes to mainstreaming veganism. It's not just your, your average you know protest in Union Square, but it's also the fact that you've got these enormous enormous companies kind of getting on the bandwagon of offering vegan food and even bringing in to some extent, maybe not the animal component, but certainly the, the environmental push behind it. That didn't really exist back when I started. 
But do you, with all this sort of rise in, in, in food opportunities, we might call it, do you feel like there could be uh, additional challenges for the movement with the onset of kind of giant corporations jumping on the vegan bandwagon and, and perhaps kind of coming from a place of sort of pure capitalism and not really caring about people or the planet? Oh, a hundred thousand billion percent. That's a real number, right? Like you can't, I mean, capitalism is evil and backwards and corrupt and, uh, and and not authentic at all. I mean, for sure, there is a backfire there, but there needs to be a multi-pronged approach to changing the world for animals. Uh, I mentioned the importance of media, and I stand by that, but I also think we need everything else, including personal narrative, which is something that I love about you, Robbie, that you are so celebratory of uh, leveraging the voices of, of those on the front lines. We also need legal means, legal change for animals. We need humane education. We still need grassroots uh, and we need business ventures. So even though it is absolutely a messed up system, it, I, I do think we have to be in it for sure. Mm. And what do you say to the vegans who are sort of shouting pretty loudly, small group, but quite a loud group, that vegan food is not going to save animals and that vegan burgers from McDonald's or vegan KFC or any of these vegan products from multinationals aren't making a difference? What do you, what do you say to that? You know, I don't say anything to it. <laughs> If they want to say that, I think they have a right to say that. Like the truth is the the vegan burgers at these fast food rest, restaurants weren't made for me and they weren't made for you. And it's not about me and it's not about you. And if people don't want to go there, then they shouldn't go there. And if they recognize the fact that it's like part of a, a company that still exploits billions of animals, then yeah, of course it's part of a company that still exploits billions of animals. But when I think about food deserts and I think about the fact that like there are so many areas here here in the U.S where the closest food that certain people can get to is a fast food restaurant. I would much prefer they have a vegan option than not. And there's another question that comes to mind, not only in terms of like activism, but also in terms of our personal uh, relationships. Is this the hill I want to die on? So when I hear this small group of activists, I get it. You know, like we there, we have so many reasons to be angry. We have so many reasons to be screaming. I don't think there's one right way forward. I don't think anybody is like totally wrong or totally right. But I do think we need to ask ourselves if this is the hill we want to die on and understand that when we're talking about things like vegan burgers at Burger King or McDonald's, it is not usually for us to decide if it's right or not. It is for like my little cousins. Well, they're not little now. They're like 40. But when <laughs> when we were kids, they were little and we would go to Burger King and they would ask for the burger without the brown part. And they meant the, they meant the meat, the patty. And like they, they didn't know that, you know, so they would just get the bun with like the piece of cheese and the fries on the side. And, you know, if it was today, maybe they would try the, you know, the Beyond Burger or the Impossible Burger. Uh, so it's better to have options than not to. We don't have a lot of time left to be having these arguments. So we kind of just have to forge ahead no matter what. Absolutely. You know, I always say to people when they challenge us on these arguments, I say, if 
a, a omnivore or a pescatarian or uh, you know a flexitarian or whoever you however you describe yourself walks into a, a, a burger joint after having a few drinks with friends and there is a vegan option there would you not want them to choose the vegan option and yes of course mcdonald's and kfc and burger king are responsible for the suffering of infinite amounts of animals but ultimately that company doesn't care whether it's animals or beans they just want to make money and if the demand outweighs the supply if, if more people want to eat bean burgers and vegan burgers then that company will sell bean and vegan burgers because that's ultimately all they want to do is provide what the consumer wants and ultimately, for me, when I have these discussions, it's all about advocacy and education. If we are focused on the end user, which is the customer, that is where the power power lies. Because when people go walk into a supermarket or when they walk into a burger bar, they vote with their dollar. They make that choice. And that is what drives industry when people make their individual choices. Fast food companies aren't necessarily pushing junk food onto people like a drug, even though I think in the US it's slightly different. You're not allowed to advertise junk food here in the UK. You can't have junk food ads on TV at certain times, you know, which are aimed at children. So things are very different depending on where you are. But I think ultimately the responsibility lies in, in with the consumer to make choices. That being said, you know, I'd like to ask you about sort of classism and even sort of, you know, tapping into racism as well within the vegan community. There is a sort of a lot of classism when it comes to this assumption that everyone who goes vegan can afford to shop at Whole Foods and have all the latest superfoods and all the very best fruits and vegetables when in places like the US and in, in other parts of the world, of course, too, it's it's not that simple. And a lot of people are just trying to get by and a, and a junk food restaurant is often, as mm -hmm. you said, the only place they're able to access high calorie foods. And I think there's an incredible film called A Place at the Table. I really recommend uh, everyone listening, listening to watch it. And it talks about how I think something like 40 million Americans live with food security issues. They don't know where their next meal is coming from. Now, in your all your years of working in this movement, have you experienced this sort of classism and this sort of attitude that everyone should be able to, to be vegan and just eat all these healthy foods? Yes. Oh, absolutely. There's so much classism in everything. I mean, there's classism in the way we and racism in the way we advocate, in the way top-down organizational campaigns focus their efforts. There is certainly classism in this idea like that is usually very white forward that is everyone can afford it, everyone can do it. And, you know, I have a whole chapter in in my book. I know we didn't we haven't gotten into that yet, but I have a whole chapter on this in in fabulous vegan that talks about you know how there are there are going to be some people that are not going to want to have this conversation because they are in survival mode and they are in life or death mode and they maybe have to feed their kids as a single parent working for minimum wage which doesn't pay you enough to live and so it is about how to get through the day and for people like that then all we can do is you know hear them and accept that and not like and not say yeah but what about yeah but what about because we don't know what it's like to walk in their shoes i do think veganism can be accessible and affordable to everyone i do think that there are ways and i'm not going to say go to the bulk bins because i think that's kind of offensive though you know the bulk bins tend to be cheaper but like 
it's kind of a classist weird statement <laughs> to say like, of course you could eat vegan, just buy the dried lentils and right. and re-soak them or, or just whatever. eat rice and beans. Eat exactly. You, know, <laughs> like, yeah. you get a lot of vegans roll out the trope. It's a trope, like, you know, just eat rice and beans. It's, yes, it's not, right. It's not really that simple, is it? No, of course it's not that simple. And there needs to be like systemic change in terms of like f- working within food deserts and, and you know, working, uh, working within communities, not coming from the outside side of these communities and like doing a two hour workshop and saying like, you guys can do it. I know you can do it, but it's more about, <laughs> it's more about like really taking the time to work on the problem of food deserts. And in the meantime, uh, for those of us who don't have to live each day as if we might not get through the rest of it, if we're privileged enough to have the ability to listen to podcasts because we have the time to and or record them because we have the ability to, then it's very likely we can make more vegan choices or go vegan ourselves, understanding that by taking the stance of of supporting a plant-based lifestyle, we're not only making a difference for ourselves, but we're voting with our dollars in a way that shows the demand so that these more systemic problems can be addressed. Now, obviously, we've talked about it on our podcast, and it is a hot topic, is is the issue of race and racial uh, identity and culture um, and how they all intersect. Um, you know, we all have identities that intersect in so many different ways. Maybe we're heterosexual, maybe we're bisexual, maybe we're gay, maybe we're trans, you know, maybe we are white, maybe we're black, maybe we're Chinese, maybe we're Italian, maybe we're Spanish. But the one thing that brings us all together in this movement in the community is our mutual understanding and acknowledgement that animals don't des- do not deserve to be exploited, abused, used for fashion or food or anything of that sort. And you would assume that everyone who thought that and believed that wouldn't be racist, wouldn't be sexist, wouldn't be transphobic, would all be sort of left-leaning liberal types. But that isn't true. People of all sorts of persuasions, politically, ethically, are vegan. How do we reconcile this? Because we want everyone to come to the table and eat plant-based. We don't want to create this division where we see liberals and conservatives at each other's necks fighting over who's right when it comes to political decision-making. How do we bring people together um, across the political divide? Because why is it that in America, in America today, to care about the environment means you're a left-wing liberal crybaby? Why does it mean in America today that if you care about the rights of people of color or trans people, you're a left-wing liberal crybaby? When did that happen? And or or is that complete? Is that another trope? Or are there some conservative people who do care about trans rights and gay rights and rights of people of color? Or is it you know why do, the media seems to sort of paint this image? that we're this sort of polarized society and there's nobody in in the middle. But as far as the vegan community goes, like how do we bring people together without creating more division? Oh, Robbie, if you could answer that question, I would be, I would be thrilled. But this year has been a very enlightening one, hasn't it? In terms of understanding the fact that all of us vegans are not on this island together. We thought we were, and then a whole bunch of folks got in their their little boats and canoed away. One of the beautiful things about veganism and animal rights is that it runs the gamut of the political spectrum. There are Republicans who are vegan, who care about animals. There are people on the left, obviously. And I have, for a long time, I found a lot of power and hope in that. 
And it was only, you know, in, in the recent years that it, it, and certainly in 2020, especially, it became more clear than ever that this is a giant, giant problem. Because yeah, it is. It is. And that's why for me, anti-racism is central to my veganism, uh, you know, and I've had to confront a lot of uh, aspects of how I have used my white silence in this movement that the animal rights movement that has been very white led in a lot of ways. And how have I been in this movement for so long? And it still is white led. How have I had these leadership roles? and not made a bigger splash. The animal rights movement is a microcosm of the world. And so we live in a racist world. And so of course the animal rights movement reflects that. It is terrifying to me how quickly people just take a marginalized community, be it you know people of the global majority or uh, uh, the LGBTQ community or insert the blank here and use the same justification to oppress them that meat eaters use to oppress animals, which is, I am here to have power over you and I can do whatever I want to because you are lesser than me. And that is the root of all oppression. And so until and unless we confront that, we will continue to live in a deeply oppressive society. Very well said. But how do we have these difficult conversations with our friends who appear to be kind of oblivious to reality of the struggles of, of their fellow human beings? So heavily focused on hashtag save the animals, forgetting that there is a human component to life uh, and, and the choices that we make, say, take chocolate, for example, we all love a slab of chocolate. And of course, we buy vegan chocolate. But if I'm buying vegan chocolate that involves child slavery, right. and the cocoa beans have been picked by children in West Africa, that's something that I should care about, because it is an intersection between my care and compassion for animals. If I ca- compassion is not selective. The whole point of compassion is that it is, is a, a circle that is ever expanding. For me, this is sort of, you know, there's this phrase I learned about performative uh, performative activism or performative, yeah, performative activism, where you, you're only saying and doing things for the show of it, just to impress other people. For me, the true core of veganism is the compassionate sparing of sentient, all sentient beings and, and, and an attempt to avoid suffering and kind of re- remove suffering within as much of our power, within much of our influence. How do we how do we have these conversations to remind people that veganism is yes the definition on the vegan vegan society website is that it's all about animals but you know last time I checked humans are animals too that's an unrefutable fact so why do we suddenly seem to make the whole movement why do so many people seem to make the whole movement about non human animals and sort of seem to exclude uh, human beings in the conversation. Right. Well, I mean, these are, these are the, the question is the work. <laughs> and I think that you're right, that we have to respect our own animal rights and we have to respect one another's animal rights as well. But, uh, you know, part of that on, is to use our privileged positions to elevate those who have been marginalized. And as, as we elevate them, as we incentivize those who have been marginalized and continue to be marginalized, as we as we put them in power positions, then things will shift. So 
I do think that some of our work is in having those conversations. We absolutely should intervene whenever people around us are are being racist. Uh, if we're if we are white people, I don't think it is the job of those who are uh, on the other end of that to speak up, but it is our job. So a hundred percent, it's our moral imperative, just as it's our moral imperative to not consume animal products. We are people who chose to be vegan as a means of living authentically and living our truths and living our worldviews. And part of that trajectory of thought also means that we have to step up when it matters and no longer consume the the oppressive products that used to make up our diets, but frequently also make up our social circles. How do we have the conversations? We sit in the discomfort. We, we kind of clumsily uh, plod through the conversations and then we do better next time. We understand that perfect is not the enemy of the good and we know that we're also on our own trajectory. And we approach all of this with humility. If I knew when I started on my animal rights journey what I knew now, I would have gone about it very differently. I didn't, I don't think that I knew at the beginning about you used the example of chocolate. I didn't know that there was such egregious uh, cruelty in the chocolate industry. Obviously, I know that now, so I don't ever consume chocolate that is part of an oppressive industry. But I didn't know that then. And we have to recognize that as people who are advocating for veganism, we need to be gentle with those who are on their paths and understand that the worst thing we can possibly do as advocates is be condescending and eye rolly um, because that doesn't feel good and that's going to put people off of of any kind of social justice trajectory quicker than anything else so yeah so obviously being part of the vegan community has its its uh, pluses and negatives and one of the challenges is how we advocate this lifestyle to to non-vegans to friends to family and when we talk with our friends and family about this it can be very triggering, very emotive, because we are essentially challenging people's culture. Um, and depending on where you grew up in the world and what kind of culture you were born into, it can be varying levels of aggression and sort of kickback. Now, you obviously probably experience a multitude of cultures being uh, living where you live. What are some of the sort of, have you heard any success stories of people who've, who've managed to transform their family culture through becoming vegan because i think that you know for a sort of a lot of like let's take say latin culture you know food is such an integral part of the family everyone has to sit down and when you come into the family and you come and say oh i'm not eating chicken anymore or i'm not eating beef anymore the family unit becomes angered and and frustrated because it feels like you you are rejecting their culture did you experience this uh, growing up, or have mm-hmm. you had any friends or family who have? Well, I think that one of the first go-to arguments that non-vegans have when confronted with the possibility of going vegan is that they can't go vegan because of their culture. And I guess I just want to say that with very, very few exceptions, almost every culture has meat in it, you know, embedded in it, at least for the like recent the recent past that's become part of the way that our cultures uh, put together food. So, you know, the good news is that there's a vegan version of everything. And I, I don't mean to dismiss the fact that this could be a real, a real challenge for certain people, especially if you're dealing with family 
who might, you know, be really set in their ways and not not open to veganism. But uh, with, with without question, you know, there are ways to veganize our our the the food of whatever culture we're part of. I, you know, I'm Jewish. It's as we're recording this, it's Hanukkah. I certainly had all of the Hanukkah foods that would normally involve the oppress the oppression of animals. And I just, you know, super easy had the vegan version of it. There are so many examples I can think of people who have been on our hen house, uh, people who have been featured in some of the media that I've created, uh, who have successfully veganized the most oppressive foods you can imagine. There's so much vegan soul food, for example, here in the U.S., and there's a very tremendously successful vegan soul food festival in Baltimore run by Brenda Sanders. It's a mac and cheese specific festival. She's just wow. done an incredible job. I think like she anticipated something like 5,000 people at the first festival and there were like 30,000. I could, I could, I might wow. have those numbers. That's wrong. a lot of mac and cheese. <laughs> right. And there were all of these vegan mac and cheese trucks. So wow. I don't know right. if I'm answering your question, but I guess, uh, I guess I just want to say in like, finally about this subject that we have to rethink our cultures and the way that we approach the food of that, of, of, of our family's ways of our ancestors ways, because at the booming of factory farming it, during world war II, you know, we had a much different global population and now it's just boom. Just so it, you know, maybe it requires rethinking and creating new traditions, but there are ways of doing that without any kind of cruelty. I often wonder what it would be like if we could see ourselves, actually see ourselves the way our grandmothers saw us. Mine was a ravishing redhead from Brooklyn and she thought I was the most beautiful and very, very special. And as a young kid, I felt that. The kids at school, however, they seemed to disagree. From the time I was eight until the time I was 30, I was what the world saw as the fat kid, which to them meant I was less than. The worst moments were those dreaded walks from the back of the classroom to the front to get the bathroom key. It took eight seconds. I timed it every time, eight seconds, when I was left vulnerable to the bullies who would hide their insults in their coughs. Fatso. And I would act like their jabs didn't matter and then cry in the privacy of my bathroom stall. Eight years ago, after finding myself unable to walk up a flight of stairs without stopping to check a pretend text message, really, so that I could catch my breath, I switched my focus from vanity to self-care and I lost nearly a hundred pounds. And that was when the world started treating me differently. Turning on to broader topics regarding compassion. Now you did a, a, a beautiful TEDx talk and anyone listening, I will put the link to this wonderful talk in the description called Compassion Unlocks Identity to uh, a 2000 strong crowd in Asbury Park. As mm. Asbury? Asbury Park. Asbury Park, yeah. But I Asbury like the way Park. you say it better. <laughs> 
tell us about what that was like, because we talked a, bit, a little bit about TED Talks and how much you had to prepare for that. And what was that like, kind of sharing a piece of your life with, with so many people? Well, thank you. I uh, also am waiting for your TED Talk, just so you know. <laughs> but maybe after <laughs> I tell you how much work it was, you won't do it. It was interesting because I, I had, when my first book came out, which was called Always Too Much and Never Enough, and um, it came out in 2016, I had done a 60-city book tour. And one of the cities that I spoke in was in New Jersey at part of this like women's conference. And the this woman in attendance worked for TEDx. And so she asked me if I wanted to do if she if I wanted to do one, and the topic was identity. And so I worked with her as my coach for like maybe a year as as we were gearing up for this giant event in Asbury Park, like which is on the Jersey Shore, and it like took over the entire town, like everywhere there were the signs for TEDx. And you know, as I talk about in the in the speech, like as a vegan lesbian with tattoos and you know who likes to take up space and <laughs> who's atheist and like insert the blank whatever yeah. word it is yeah. I, I have a very strong relationship to identity and for me like the core of that is compassion and I don't think that we can really fully unlock our compassion for others until we do the hard work of unlocking the compassion for ourselves yeah I agree I often say to people that the world would be a kinder, happier place if the world was made up of kinder, happier people. Because happier, kinder people don't want to blow each other up. They don't want to steal from each other. They don't want to cause physical harm to each other. That often uh, the the sadness and unhappiness and the anger and the depression, you know, leads to a very unhappy society. And that mental health is something which is incredibly neglected by our society that we place all our worth on material wealth on on physical appearance and and uh, our position in society on these very superficial things and then when the moment came that i stopped allowing other people's perceptions of me to define me something shifted it was uncomfortable and i started to realize the ways that my perceptions of others was making me define them. Sometimes based on the very things that I had spent so long trying to escape, how they looked, their bodies. And since I couldn't get out of this judgment loop, I decided to go with it. And every time I would recognize that I was judging someone else, they're so big, they're so small, they're so tall, they're so short, stop! I would stop myself and I would say, self, do you feel healthy and grounded today? And if not, why not? Listen, as a tattooed vegan lesbian animal rights activist with a fairly substantial obsession with my rescued pit bull and a rather loud habit of tap dancing across the room, I know what it means to piss people off just by being me. But it's ironic, really, because what I want to stand for is compassion for myself first and then for all of those other individuals, humans and non-humans, whom we so easily cast aside. The ones we marginalize, the ones we choose not to see, the ones we don't call beautiful. 
with regards compassion as as a wife and feel like is is a superpower like myself i'm a buddhist and i believe that compassion is an innate part of who we are but do you believe that do you believe that human beings are born with compassion or do you think that we have to learn it through our society Wow. I don't know. I mean, I think the answer to my question is I don't know. I think it depends on my mood. Sometimes I think we are born as blank slates and we are born with, uh, you know, a lot of uh, ability to innately find compassion. I think that that is that is obvious by the way children protect each other and children care about what's good and children care about not harming, you know, anyone else. And then it just slowly, slowly, slowly gets knocked out of them. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, you know, it's it's also very possible to learn it. And that requires, in my opinion, doing the hard work. It requires doing the hard work of self-growth, whether it's through, you know, spirituality or through therapy or through 12 steps or through friends who challenge you in the right places and through your own inner work. Or it's, or, or it's through, you know, maybe some of us have to go through something very traumatic to be able to sort of set ourselves on that path of self-compassion and compassion for the world. I was going to ask that, you know, it's obviously all very well for me to have this like utopian dream of humanity being this kind and compassionate species. But you, in your TED talk, you, you mentioned you talked about bullying and how, you know, people treated you as a, as a, as a young woman, like how... Do you think you would have been if you hadn't experienced that kind of negativity? You know, does the sort of chat, you know, I also bullied at school, was bullied at school and, and picked on incessantly. But I, I really question, would I be the same person I was today if I, if life was sort of handed to me on a silver platter? You know, there's a lot of young people who sort of seem to sail through school and they're the top of the class and they're super popular and everyone dotes on their feet. But then, you know, they they enter adulthood and they seem unprepared for the challenges of life whereas I feel like if we've experienced challenges in school uh, it, it almost sort of sharpens the sword as it were as it were do you agree I definitely think it sharpens the sword uh, I I don't know how to word this because I don't want to come across like I'm saying you know and therefore it's okay because being bullied as a kid was awful as you know I mean I had so many dark days for years and years and years and the like my story that my classmates created about me and who I was and what I was worth followed me from the time I was like eight years old until I graduated high school and that was terrible. I mean, really bad. And, and yes, of course, of course, that helps me to understand compassion. And of course, that built my character and created, you know, who I am today, someone who cares deeply and stands her ground, because I couldn't then because we're somewhat powerless as children. Uh, I couldn't stand my ground then. And so I probably overcompensate now. And it's probably very woven into my activism for animals and for other marginalized communities. But at the same time, like what a terrible way to get to that place. Absolutely. And I can sympathize with that. I feel like as an adult, I do often overcompensate to assert myself because I had, a, had, you know, what felt like an eternity of school being bullied and picked on and, you know, ridiculed for being an intelligent person. I would answer questions. I would ask questions. I was always had an inquiring mind, but I was victimized for being, you know, the brains, you know, I was given a million different nicknames and poked and prodded and 
if I could not have that as a child, um, I wouldn't want it and I wouldn't want it for my children. I, I, but at the same time, I think, you know, I'm a stronger, better person for it. But that being said, you know, there are many children who don't survive it. They don't get through. And, uh, you know, the same goes for, you know, bringing it back to veganism. When we take this lifestyle or we, we align ourselves with this philosophy, many people battle with it because their friends and their families ridicule them. They poke fun at them. They call them names. They joke about their food. They hide meat in their food. What would you say to someone who's sort of maybe, you know, under 16, who's in the, you know, in the family unit, who's not able to, they really want to be vegan and they really can't bear to eat the meat, but their families say, you know, eat the meat or kind of get out, like, or don't eat. Because I get a lot of those questions from young people on VN. What are your thoughts on how to sort of deal with that? Well, that's a tough one. I, I mean, I think I first want to acknowledge that that's extremely difficult. I, I then want to acknowledge that it is a very temporary problem. You know, it's difficult to talk to young people and offer the gift of perspective because young people like inherently can't have a lot of it because we can only have the amount of perspective as our years warrant. So, uh, you know, when I was in school, which I don't think about that often, but when I was in school, it was like every day it was unrelenting. I didn't think it would ever end. Of course, now I'm 41 and it was a very long time ago and you can't really offer that perspective perspective to a young person who's in the middle of something like that, because that is their lived experience every day. And so I guess all I can offer is this, do the best you can and find safe spaces in the ways that you can. I could get super woo and say, have a photo of you as a little baby and, and carry it around with you or put it on your bathroom mirror and take care of that kid, take care of that baby as best you can and do it day by day. And one day it will change. It's like, you know, the It Gets Better project, which obviously was geared toward LGBTQ youth who could not come out because of a variety of dangerous circumstances they would be put in. Dan Savage, the great podcaster uh, from Savage Lovecast, started the It Gets Better project. And I think it's brilliant. And I do think it gets better. So if you can find a mentor, maybe it's you, Robbie, uh, maybe it's someone in, in your community, if you can find a mentor and if you could just really hold on to those people who who have the light that you want to have, then one day you will be able to make the decisions and have the agency that those of us who are children, you know, can't necessarily have yet. Another thing that brings us together is our shared love of media uh, and uh, creating content and telling stories. You have been involved in working with Veg News for a long, long time. For anyone who doesn't know what Veg News is, do explain uh, what it is as a platform and as an organization, and also your role and your involvement being, has been with it. Thanks, Robbie. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, I, I'm very passionate, like you are, about the role of media, of responsible, vegan, pro-animal media. It is why I started our hen house with Marianne Sullivan in 2010. And before that, uh, I, I joined forces with Veg News back in, I think, like maybe 2005. I think that was maybe when I wrote my first article for them. And I started writing a little bit here and there at the time. I loved it. I mean, it was like my North Star. Like I, I could not believe that I had an article published in Veg News. I was so happy. Like I, I it, it like elevated my entire life. And it was this little sidebar. <laughs> it was like a profile on a, a vegan acting troupe. And it was like maybe 300 words. <laughs> 
and I was over the moon. So over over the years, they started giving me more assignments for more exposés. Uh, like I remember writing an expose on the ecotourism industry. It was a very challenging experience to do that. It was my first time doing that. And then, you know, I started making videos for Veg News. Uh, Veg News is very, you know, similar to plant-based news, very U.S.-based, but uh, really a media outlet that has its finger on the pulse of veganism and vegan news, similarly to what you do so, so well. And then flash forward a bunch of years, I was on the book tour for my first book, Always Too Much and Never Enough. And I stopped in San Francisco. I spoke with Colleen Holland, who's the publisher at Veg News. And she said they were going to be looking for a senior editor. And I threw my name in the hat. And I, I started as the senior editor. Several months later, I moved to California from New York City. And I did that for a couple of years. Moved the uh, editorial office down to LA from Northern California. And then I stepped out and be, because I wanted to focus on book writing and on acting and on a variety of other projects I was working on. But I stayed involved as the love columnist and the celebrity interviewer. And then ultimately, I authored the first Veg News book. Millions of people are more interested than ever in trying on veganism for size. And the Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan is the perfect place to start. This manifesto includes everything you need to know about the myths and realities of embracing a plant-based lifestyle. This 256-page tome has everything you need to look good, to feel good, and to do good in 30 days, complete with some pretty epic recipes. For those of you who are looking into veganism for the first time, this is a super practical guide to getting you started. And if you're already vegan, we'll make you even more fabulous than you already are, as if that's even possible. Amazing. The Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan. Yeah. So it's what here. can we find in this fabulous new book? <laughs> uh, you know, it's so funny, Robbie, because like, I, I don't know why I'm telling you this, but after my first book came out and I was trying to think of what my second book would be, I had all of these ideas and I kept saying, I'm not going to write a vegan book, though. I'm not going to write a vegan book because there's so many vegan books that are so great that already exist. And I, like, of course, you know, Murphy's Law, like or whatever you want to call it. Like, of course, I wrote a vegan book because that's I was like adamant that I wouldn't. And as I started to put it together, it became clear that I that I really wanted to. Like, I don't know why I was in denial of that for so long, but the truth is I have like nearly 20 years of experience of perfecting my thoughts around every like silly argument against veganism. I know a lot of people as you do, because when you work in media, you wind up having a lot of connections to experts who know a whole lot more than we actually do. Like the people with the microphone don't necessarily know that much. <laughs> so I started to put it together. I kind of wanted it to feel like a sassy older sister writing or talking to you. That's That was what I was going for. I wanted it to be a book that like everybody could enjoy, whether you're a longtime vegan and you want to learn about animal law, which I have a chapter on, or if you're like a veg curious or you're gifted this book and you don't know what to make for lunch because you're really into having your ham and cheese sandwiches at lunch, there's a chapter for you. I wanted the chapters to not take longer than five or 10 minutes to read. So there's a lot of them. You can read it out of order. It is definitely 
not a precious, delicate book. It's a, like a little in your face, but in a way that I is not at all pedantic. It's more uh, kind of, hey, let's have a conversation over a soy latte. Wait, what's your problem? You don't think you get enough protein? Okay, this tablecloth has protein in it. Like it's kind of like that style, but it's not, it's not at all intended to alienate. It's intended to bring people together around the possibilities of embracing more of a plant-based lifestyle. Amazing. And and what what are some of your favorite kind of tips? You obviously talked about the sandwiches and and all those other things, but what is the one thing that, you know, really stands out to you? Did you do you love the most? You know, there, I have two ways of answering that. One is there is a vegan version of everything. I say that like 300 times in the book. I, I start making fun of the fact that I say it. I hashtag it. I put it in different fonts. Like it, it's silly, right? But there is literally a vegan version of everything. I think that's the main takeaway from the book. And like there is like literally nothing you could tell me that I can't veganize. Just full stop. But the best part for me personally, like as Jasmine, the best part for me personally was that w- within a, a pretty pink book with, you know, donuts on it and cute font and beautiful designs, I got to talk about heavy hitting issues. And I got to like have a chapter about what's going on behind closed doors for animals, including the myths around quote unquote humane. I got to really talk about the economics of how meat and dairy are totally government subsidized and how completely messed up that is and how totally unsustainable that is. But I also got to talk about like cute shoes and, you know, like my favorite type of seitan and my favorite type of, um, you know, all the milks available that are vegan, which is like, do you remember that? Did you see Forrest Gump? Mm -hmm. Do you remember that scene where they're like scrubbing the floor and talking about shrimp? And they're just like listing all the different types of shrimp you can eat. Mm -hmm. That reminds me of like how we could just go on and on about every kind of plant milk there is like (laughs) pea milk and, you know, coconut milk and soy milk and rice milk and almond milk and cashew milk and peanut milk. And oh my gosh, it just doesn't end. You could milk anything. So why milk a cow? (laughs) I mean, this is what's funny about about food and the being seen is that there's so much to choose from and we're often ridiculed uh, and, and people say, but what do you eat? And it's a restrictive dietary choice. It's absolute BS. Like we are not restricting our diets. And if anything, we're adding so much more to our diet by creating a lot more variety. And I think that, you know, when people go vegan, when they go plant-based for the first time, I think it's an opportunity to fall in love with food again. You know, we become so lazy when it comes to eating just animal products. We just throw a chicken on the pan and boil some vegetables with an inch of their lives. You know, I think that veganism is, and I like what you said earlier about carving out new cultures. Christmas and Thanksgiving has traditionally been about sitting around a table around the carcass of a dead turkey. Mm -hmm. Why can't we create a new tradition where it doesn't involve that kind of suffering? It doesn't involve that kind of what is really quite a brutal tradition. And I think that books like this give us the opportunity to do that because when a lot of people do switch to this lifestyle, they don't know where to begin. They don't know where to start. And, you know, yes, there are a million and one vegan cookbooks now, but a lot of the time they miss out on all the other elements of this lifestyle. And yes, it's easy to cook a vegan cake or a vegan cupcake or 
vegan scrambled egg, whatever, but there needs to be elements of why it's important that you're doing this, not just from a health perspective, but also environmentally, but also ethically. I think that people who adopt this lifestyle, who really understand the importance of it, are the ones that stick with it. Because yes, we're going to have health ups and downs. Yes, we may be lethargic and maybe we'll get some brain fog here and there because we're drinking too much alcohol or eating too much sugar or perhaps we're just getting a little bit older. But it doesn't mean that we should just drop the vegan lifestyle because we're having a few health problems. Like there is a solution to transforming and improving your health on a plant-based diet if you seek the right information. I think that's why knowledge and information is so vital to changing the future of our species. And, you know, books like this, I believe, will play a role in that. So thank you for introducing it. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I just I think you just covered a lot that I that I hope that this book does. But beyond that, you know, meat eaters will eat something gross and they'll just be like, oh, that was gross. I won't buy that meat again. And then they'll just eat dinner. But like if a meat eater eats something vegan that they don't like, they like throw the whole vegan thing under the bus. And they're like, ugh, I can't do vegan. That was a disgusting plant-based burger or whatever. But like, oh my God, there's like a hundred billion more. We just have veganism on such a different, like, like it's, what it, what do I want to say? It's like um, disgusting unless proven otherwise, as opposed, like people don't tend to approach it as open-mindedly because I think they're afraid of the permanence of the word vegan or like call, like yeah. slapping a label. I, I, I felt like that when I first went vegan, I was scared of what it meant. I was scared that if I said I was vegan, that like I would have no room to fail. I really loved this, this soft serve ice cream. It was like something I ate every day. It was at this place in Chelsea in New York city called tasty delight. And it was this low calorie soft serve. And I was like down with going vegan, but I really didn't want to give that up. That was how I it obviously now all these years later that is the silliest thing i could say but like that was real for me because habit is a big thing and if that tasty delight soft serve was a thing that i gave myself as a treat every day when i was like you know struggling through life and i would go there all i heard when you were like oh you are going vegan you can't have that like i was like wait but that's a thing i do for myself and i i suddenly felt offensive and and i suddenly felt like okay no forget this and i was getting in my own way you know like Five minutes later, I realized there's a vegan soft serve place like down the street from Tasty Delight that didn't involve the exploitation of any animals. But habit runs deep. You know, you just mentioned, oh, on Thanksgiving, we sit around with the boiled chicken or whatever on, on Christmas. And, you know, I have been vegan for 17 years and I I am stuck in habits. And every now and then I don't know what to make for lunch. And I just wrote a book about veganism. Like habit is a thing. We have to constantly, constantly be like reframing our habits around food. How many meals do you do you make a week? Like the same meal? Probably I'm gonna guess your average person uh circles around the same five meals. And if those five meals are made of meat and you know where to get them at your grocery store and you have your budget ready for your supermarket experience, it's going to not be the easiest psychological process to just bam, go vegan. It takes time and it, and it needs patience. Another thing that obviously is important, integral part of our lives is, uh, you know, personal care. And many of us, including myself, are quite partial to a number of lotions and potions. And <laughs> what many people don't realize is that many of these beauty products are actually not vegan. They contain gelatin. They can contain lanolin from boiled lamb's wool. 
there's a large amount of animal products that are actually used in beauty. And beauty is a multi-billion pound industry. You are involved in something called the Kinder Beauty Box. Um, and you are doing, you work with the lovely Ivana Lynch or Evie Lynch, as she's known as, and, and also the equally lovely Danielle Monet. Tell us a little bit about this innovative little box and what's in it, because you know, I love a I love a box of goodies. It is a box, but it's a movement. I mean, it's true. There's cruelty in your average eyeliner. But but just like I described the vegan soft serve place being down the street from the the oppressive soft serve place. Uh, same thing with beauty. There's vegan, cruelty-free, clean beauty products everywhere. And Kinder Beauty is a vegan subscription beauty box company that was started partly to mainstream the movement to end the exploitation of animals when it comes to animals who are cruelly and horrifically tested on for the sake of us to look and feel good. That is totally unnecessary. And so Kinder Beauty kind of works with all of these different companies who are creating the cruelty-free version. And some of these companies are massive. I mean, we've got your little mom and pop shop or mom and mom shop or pop and pop shop. Let's not discriminate. Or you've got your big giant companies that are making the switch to cruelty-free clean beauty. And so I'm, I'm happy and lucky to be their vice president of content. I love working with Evie and Daniela and Andrew Bernstein as well, uh, the founders of the company. And it's, it's like, as soon as Kinder Beauty started, everyone was like, yes, give me that. Like everyone was waiting for something like this to arrive. Beauty is often, as you said, so easily accessible. And it's so easy just to reach for anything on the shelf without really thinking about what uh, what was involved in its production. And when it comes to food, obviously, it's something we ingest. But we do want to question how animals are treated and exploited for these products too. So we will put a link to the to the in the description for Kind of Beauty. So please do check them out. I think that's all we've got time for, my friend. But thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's a real pleasure. I'm a big fan of yours and your brain. And I think like the moment we met, I just, I, I was like, Robbie, where have you been all my life? As we've said before, we're the same exact age. We have so many of the like similar tracks in life that... I am given so much hope and inspiration by the fact that you exist just over the pond. You're doing such tremendous work. Thank you so much for all you're doing. Thank you, my friend. Before I let you go, and I appreciate your time, if you were stuck on a desert island and it was just you and a pig, <laughs> obviously you don't eat the pig because you're a vegan. If I could give you one vegan dish, one music album, and one book, what would you take with you? Oh, my God. <laughs> Okay, one vegan dish, my my wife's pizza. She she makes her own crust. She puts some spinach powder in it as well so that we're getting extra veggies. She makes her own cheese. So I would take her pizza. That's my favorite food. One album you said, it -hmm. would definitely be a show tune, like a Broadway album, something with something by Sondheim. So I'm gonna say company. The cast out al- the original cast album of Company or the London production with Patti Lapone. What book would I take? There's a young adult novel that's sitting on my shelf, and I really keep wanting to read it. And I just am a terrible reader because I read all day and like for work, so I just never sit down and read a good cozy book. I'm really wanting to read uh, I Will Not Die with You Tonight, which is a young adult novel, and I feel like 
the way I'm going to read it is by being put on a desert island with my wife's pizza and a pig friend <laughs> while listening to Sondheim. So I'll take that Sounds one. incredible. Ms. Tatchman Singer, thank you so much for joining us on the PBN Podcast. What a pleasure. Thank you, Robbie. This episode is produced and presented by me, Robbie Lockie, and edited by Phil Marriott. Please subscribe for more plant-based news and vegan views and much, much more.